Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I'd invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. So Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 46. The NASB says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him. They found Jesus in the temple. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You order us a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning's sermon is titled, Do You Know the Real Jesus? For those who have been with here for the past several months, you know that I'm preaching through the book of Psalms. And I'm now going to balance that Old Testament series with the New Testament series as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke. So before we zoom in to our theme verses in chapter 2, I'm going to zoom out and give you a snapshot of the book of Luke as a whole. Luke is the only Gospel writer. He's the only Gospel writer relative to Matthew, Mark, and John that tells us why he writes his gospel. He gives us an insight into his motivation, into what compels him to write the words on paper. So let's turn to the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In Luke chapter 1, Verses 1 to 4, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke, in the introduction to his gospel, tells us he sets up the story 
And he basically says, I'm going to tell you the true story about the Savior of humanity. I'm going to tell you about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you the exact truth that he was born that he lived, that he was crucified on a cross, that he resurrected, and then he ascended into heaven. And the content inside Luke's gospel is so rich, there's so much of it, Luke had to write a sequel to his book, and that is called the Book of Acts. Luke was a physician. He was a medical doctor. He's referred to as the beloved physician. This means Luke had an interest in seeing people go from sickness to wellness. To go from from being unwell to being healthy. So Luke now can use his eyes and look out at the world and see a human race suffering from a spiritual sickness a spiritual disease. And his gospel now points us to the spiritual doctor who can fix us, who can cure us, who can now make us well, and his name is Jesus. Luke wrote his gospel so that we may know the truth. And in knowing the truth, in knowing the real Jesus, we can now have a real relationship with him. And as I mentioned before, in Luke 1, verse 4, he tells us why he writes his gospel. He writes, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, why should I know the exact truth? Why should you know the exact truth? Why should someone in 21st century America know the exact truth? Because the exact truth applies to everyone, everywhere, all the time. Because the exact truth stands forever. Because knowledge of the exact truth leads to godliness. And the inverse of that statement is also true. Ignorance of the truth leads to ungodliness. Why should we know the exact truth? Because the exact truth vaccinates you against lies. Because the exact truth points you away from all of those things that don't save because the exact truth points you directly to the one who does save, Jesus Christ. Because the only way to have a real relationship with Christ is to know the real Jesus discovered only within the pages of exact truth, the Word of God. So now we zoomed out. That's a broad overview of Luke. Now let's zoom in to our theme verses. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. This is going to describe a situation when Jesus was 12 years old. And this is why I'm starting here, because these verses in Luke are exclusively radically special. Why? In every other gospel, the writers jump from Jesus being born when he's a baby to Jesus being a man. 
it goes from Jesus being born to when he's being baptized by, in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. There's a leap, there's a gap of 30 years. But in one special place, right here in the book of Luke, we have a real historical record of what happened and what Jesus said when he was 12 years old. There are other fake gospels written 100, 200 years after Christ resurrected. They're phonies, they're fairy tales, they're hocus pocus. The only place on planet Earth in the entire cosmos where there's a reliable record of what happened in the silent years between Jesus being zero and 30 is right here in Luke chapter 2. So what does the text say? Verse 41. Now his parents, Joseph and Mary, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, Jesus, became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. The feast of the Passover. What does this mean? I'm going to tell you. Passover refers back to the book of Exodus. When God's people, the Hebrews, were in Egyptian bondage. And there was a plague that came through the land of Egypt that killed the firstborn of every household. Humans and animals alike. But God told his people how to be preserved in that judgment. And they shed the blood of a one-year-old lamb on the doorposts and lintel, on the horizontal and vertical beams of their houses. And when the judgment angel of God came into the land and saw the blood, the angel passed over that house. And as a result, the Hebrews were now set free. They were now free to worship God in the wilderness. And because that event was God delivering them from the hands of a foreign nation, now every year after that event, they would go to Jerusalem to rehearse, to remember, to celebrate, lest they not forget. And back then, there was the feast of the Passover, which was one day, which was followed by seven days, which was the feast of the unleavened bread. But back then, when someone said Passover, which was the Super Bowl of all Jewish holidays... When someone said the Passover, they commonly were referring to the Passover plus the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So one day plus seven. It was an eight-day celebration. Why am I telling you this? Because Luke tells us Joseph and Mary not only were there the full number of days, all eight days, they did so faithfully every year. Why is Luke telling us this? Because back then, some people cut it short. Back then, some people only spent one day. Back then, some people only spent two days, and they quickly went back home. Luke is keying us in into the obedience 
into the faithfulness, into the piety, into how devoted Joseph and Mary were. Oh, and by the way, it was a three-day journey to go from where Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth to Jerusalem. Because back then they traveled on foot. So it was three days to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem, eight days there, and then three days to head back home. Three plus eight plus three equals 14. Every year, Joseph and Mary faithfully took a two-week unpaid vacation. They dropped everything. And they said, we have to honor, we have to glorify, we have to worship God. Joseph could have had orders stacking up in his carpenter shop. Orders that could have promised to made him rich, but he would say no. The word of God has commanded that all Jewish males must go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. What does Luke say next? But his parents, but Jesus' parents, they celebrated the full eight days. They were faithful, obedient Jews. Now they were getting ready to go back home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but Joseph and Mary, his parents, were unaware of it. Is Luke trying to tell us that Joseph and Mary were bad parents? No. He just gave us all this circumstantial detail to show us they were faithful, pious Jews. You see, back then, it's not like it is now. Families didn't travel in units of three or four, isolated from one another. So when Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem, guess who traveled with them? All of Nazareth. The caravan that traveled was the entire village. So if we were all Nazarenes, your kids would be with my kids, my kids would be with your kids, and that's just how it was. That was normal. Mary could have thought Jesus was Joseph and vice versa. So Luke telling us this simply tells us a normal thing happened. When they supposed Jesus was with them, they weren't bearing irresponsible. The village truly did travel in a big, massive group back then. And what does the text say next? The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Question, have you ever supposed Christ was with you when he wasn't? Question, did you ever have a plan? Did you ever have a routine? Did you ever have a map? Did you ever have a way of doing things and you supposed, you assumed, you operated under the pretense that Christ was with you, but in reality, he wasn't. But in reality, he was somewhere else. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones, every sermon he preached was brilliant. 
It was certain degrees of brilliance. He preached a sermon once on this text called, Are You a Christian? when he asked that central question. Are you a Christian? Because if you are, you ought not to always suppose, presume, that Christ is always with you. Point number one, and I advise everyone write this down. Point number one, do you know the real Jesus? Because you ought not to suppose, to assume, to live under the pretense, to take for granted, to imagine that Christ is always with you. Joseph and Mary had a plan. They thought this year would be like the 11 years prior where they would go to the feast, they would spend eight days, they would pack up, and they'd go back home. They had a plan, but at the last minute, God changed the plan. God derailed their plans and caused them to turn around. And for me personally, this is insanely difficult for me to preach because I am Mr. Plan. I am Mr. Strategy. And I can't stand it when my plans that I devise become derailed. If I was in the story, it would say Elijah had a temper tantrum because his plan was derailed. Joseph and Mary had a plan, but God changed it. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 20.24 says, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Martin Lloyd-Jones was right. As Christians, we ought not to suppose that Christ is always with us. But let's consider this the other way. What if you're not a Christian? If you're not a Christian and you're going your own way from some place to another place, Christ is going to be missing. Christ is not going to be there. There's going to be a deficiency There's going to be a void. But guess what? If you're not a Christian and you don't know the real Jesus, you're going to have the sense that something is missing, but you're not going to know that something missing is Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Do you know someone who's depressed? Are you depressed? Do you know someone who's anxious? Do you know someone who has a lack of contentment? Do you know someone who's unsatisfied with life? Do you know someone who suffers from sleeplessness or this internal sense of yearning inside them because they can tell you, I feel as if something is missing? I agree with you. Because if I didn't know Jesus, I would be discontented as well. I would feel as if there's something missing. I would feel as if there's, some, there's a big gap inside of my life. But once you know the real Jesus, there's a real hole in the human heart, which is a hole the size of eternity. And the only thing that can fill the real hole in the human heart is the real Jesus. 
But then there's the Christian. And we ought not to suppose that Christ is always with us. Church, let me tell you something. It's one thing if we do things out of habit. It's one thing if we do things out of routine. It's one thing if we get up every morning and expect life to go and the religious stuff that we do to go the way they always were. And no one's beating up Joseph and Mary because Luke already told us they were being faithful Jews in going back and forth to Jerusalem every year. But even in their faithfulness, even in their obedience, even in doing things, they can't expect things to always go out did in the past because we ought not to suppose We ought not to presume that Christ is always with us. Jesus says himself in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the question you have to ask yourself today is, are you in the caravan going back to Nazareth without Christ or Have you stopped and dropped everything, turned back, and are heading to Jerusalem where Christ is? I have a question. In whatever it is that you did, or in whatever it is that you plan to do, did you consult God first? When was the last time we just stopped? Sounds uncomfortable. When was the last time we just stopped? Hit the pause button on life. Took a step back and said, God, lead me. I'm not going to presume, God, I'm going in the way you want me to go. God, lead me. Guide me. Direct me. But you ask that question with the willingness to be redirected. To turn back to Jerusalem, as opposed to continuing to Nazareth. The reason why we ought not to suppose, the reason why we have to ascertain and examine ourselves and inquire, is Christ with us, is because false assurance is one of the most dangerous assumptions any Christian can operate under. When you have false assurance, you now expect God to do your will. And your system of worship now just confirms your views, your desires. And if God is the one who sanctions, and if God is the one who's validating whatever it is that you want to believe, what incentive would you ever have to change? The danger of false assurance is that if we suppose Christ is with us, we are actually traveling farther and farther away from Jesus in Jerusalem and taking a straight course to Nazareth where Christ is not. We have to remember, church, 
that the real Jesus is still God. He's still sweet. He's still glorious. He's still true. He's still majestic. He's still gracious. He is still wonderful and beautiful without us. But without the real Jesus, we are but dust. So do you know the real Jesus? Because you ought not to suppose that Christ is with you. And what was Joseph and Mary's response? Were they paralyzed? No. Were they crippled? No. They sensed Jesus' absence... And what they immediately now did is turned around to where they last found him in Jerusalem. In other words, sadness prompted action and their search for their son had conviction behind it. It had animation behind it. It had fervency behind it as they now sought after their 12-year-old son. So do you know the real Jesus? Because you ought not to suppose that Christ is always with you. Second point. Do you know the real Jesus? Because even when it seems as if he's lost, he's always meant to be found. Even when it seems as if he's lost, he's always meant to be found. Found. Here's a preview of the rest of the story. Joseph and Mary find Jesus. Where do they find him? In the temple in Jerusalem. They found him in a wide open public place. And at the time in the city of Jerusalem, the place in the city that would have been the most populated would have been the temple. What's the point? Jesus didn't teleport to the other side of the world and hid in an obscure cave in the middle of nowhere. He was hiding in plain sight. He was amidst where people were. He wasn't really hiding. He was lost, but he was meant to be found. Because even when Jesus seems lost, he's always meant to be found. And the reality is many people don't find the real Jesus because they don't look. Do you know where you can find the real Jesus right now? In the book of Luke. In the book of Mark. In the book of Matthew. In the book of John. That is the real revelation of a real God about the real Jesus. If you seek him, you will find him. Jesus himself said, said that. And where do you find him? In the pages of Holy Scripture. Joseph and Mary did not have, the apostles did not have a New Testament. We do. We can easily find him immediately in God's revealed word in Scripture. And on top of that, where did they find Jesus? They found found him in the temple in his father's house, in a place of worship, in a place where other individuals who had a sincere and earnest desire to have a real relationship with God, they found him amongst his people. And if Jesus wanted his own natural mother 
to search for him. What does that say about you and me now? That says we have to be active. It says we can't be passive. No one becomes holy by osmosis. You're not going to know the real Jesus by sitting here and having me preach to you. You have to seek him. You have to search him out. You have to be active and execute effort. Here's how salvation works. When God saves me, when God saves you, it's operative, meaning he does all the work. But our sanctification now, or how we grow from Christian infancy to maturity, it requires us doing work. Guess what? God never changes. We're the ones that change. So what's variable? We are which means we're the ones now who have to exert ourselves and actively seek for Jesus Christ. Do you know what separates someone who has an anemic prayer life from a prayer warrior? Discipline. Do you know what separates a Bible titan filled Bible knowledge and a Bible, uh, and a Bible novice? Effort. Do you know what separates someone who is passively conformed by the world versus someone who's transformed by the word of God, purpose, and identity? Even when Jesus seems lost, he's always meant to be found, and it requires purposeful effort. Pay attention now to the active verbs in these verses. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7 to 8, Ask... And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Romans 10.13 Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. John 10.27-28 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And why God withdraws? One reason is simple. When there's a felt absence of Christ, and we know what it feels like to have an intimacy and a connection with Jesus, we're not only now going to pursue him with more fervency or urgency, but now when we do find him, We know what it feels like when he was lost, when he was absent. So what are we going to do now? Now we're going to hold on to him tighter than we ever did before. For Jesus is meant to be found, and he will be found by those who earnestly seek him. So do you know the real Jesus? Because even when he seems to be lost... He's always meant to be found. Now, before I leave this point alone, I want to make sure we have a clear blueprint, a clear piece of actionable advice on how we seek Jesus. As I said, the only way to know the exact truth, the real historical truth about Christ, is never by someone else is never by going away in a retreat, is never by personal experience. It's by immersing yourself in God's exact truth found only and exclusively in the Bible. But we have to keep this in mind. Joseph and Mary found Christ 
after their plans were interrupted, after their plans were turned around, after their original schedule was changed at the last minute. So when we are seeking the real Jesus, we not only read about him in the pages of Scripture, we actually have to approach the world with a sense of humility so that Christ can now interrupt our thinking. He can interrupt our worldview. He can interrupt all those things that we think we're right about. But he can transform Because when a natural human being comes face to face with a spiritual, holy God, he's not going to be the one that changes. You will. So you have to initiate that search and rescue for Christ with a sense of humility, ready, willing, and able to be interrupted and disrupted by Jesus so he transforms you. In 21st century America, there are plenty of fake Jesuses everywhere. And those fake Jesuses usually find you. They want to sell you something. They want you to have your best life right now at this very second. They want to maximize your life right now in 2018. And they prepare you and nurture you for the present. But the real Jesus is preparing you for eternity. And he never, ever lets you settle for who you are now. He transforms you into the man, into the woman that God called you to be. So do you know the real Jesus? Because even when it seems as if he's lost, he's always meant to be found. Third point... Do you know the real Jesus? Because when it seems as if he is lost, God is neither being mean or distant. Sometimes he's being gracious and trying to save you from having a fake relationship with a phony Christ. The short way of saying that is this. Sometimes God will divorce you from a fake Jesus so you can meet the real Jesus. Now, how does God do that? How does God divorce us from a fake Jesus so we can enter into a relationship with the real Jesus? The first way is this. By frustrating human efficiency. What does the text say? The text says Joseph and Mary had a plan. They had a schedule to go from point A, Jerusalem, to point B, Nazareth. It was a three-day caravan trip. It was a three-day journey. What did God do? He, at the last minute, changed their plan and redirected them. 
If you were a time management specialist looking at Joseph and Mary's travels, you would say all the other Nazarenes, they kept to a schedule. They were much more efficient. Joseph and Mary spent three days wasted searching for Jesus while everyone else, by the time they found Christ, everyone else from the village, they would have arrived back home and resumed their everyday life. From an efficiency standpoint, Joseph and Mary failed miserably. But here's the thing we have to understand. God's priorities for efficiency in this life are not ours. And God never, from a human standpoint, takes the speediest, nor does he take the most direct route from A to B. So when we think that our efficiencies totally failed, totally collapsed, God's efficiencies triumphed. Just imagine what was going through Mary's mind when she thought she lost Jesus. This is the virgin who in Luke 1, an angel visited her and said, you will bear a son, you are a virgin, but you will give birth to Emmanuel. Just imagine what was happening in Mary's head when she thought she lost the Emmanuel, when she thought she lost the miracle child that she gave birth to when she hadn't yet known a man. She could have thought that she was a complete and total failure as a mother, but her efficiencies were frustrated so that God's could triumph. And a Bible is a book that time and time again shows us God loves doing things in a way that we in human beings would never do. How did God reveal himself to Moses? In a burning bush? I mean, not like a horde of angels with light and theme music and horses and, and fire and a whirlwind and a might. No, a burning bush. How did God choose to slay Goliath with a mighty heavenly army, with a fire bolt down from heaven? No, with a shepherd, slingshot. Okay. How did God execute his rescue mission for humankind on a cross where they thought he, Christ was being punished for his sins? God loves doing things the way we would never like to do it just to show us that He is God, that we are not sovereign. And when our efficiencies fail, God triumphs. God was telling Joseph and Mary, I'm going to derail your plans. And what was the end result? They got, were drawn closer and closer to who? Jesus. And they ended up exactly where they needed to be. And the point is this. In modern life, sometimes we have more faith in a fake functional Savior other than Jesus. And what God will do is he'll completely demolish, he'll completely destroy that fake Savior to reveal to us the poverty of that Savior and the misdirection of our faith so we can now be introduced to the real Jesus Christ. Because guess what? Jesus never fails. 
So sometimes God will divorce you from the fake Jesus so that you will know the real one. What's the second way he does that? By slowing you down. John Piper has a great line. He says, God's purpose is to sanctify the traveler, not to speed him from A to B. When you have a relationship with the real Jesus, it's not about doing more stuff. It's not about getting more done. It's about doing it in the right spirit. Martha and Mary. Martha was busy doing stuff. She was highly efficient. She was highly productive. But while the Savior of humanity was in her living room, she wasn't paying any attention to him. She was doing stuff. But Mary, on the other hand, wasn't doing a thing. She was the most unproductive, time-inefficient sister, but she was right there at the feet of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Joseph and Mary were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. God derailed their plans and brought them back to Jerusalem. Question, who was the Passover really about? Was it really about a lamb? Was it really about freedom from Egyptian bondage? Was it really about being freed from a natural oppressor? No, it was really about Jesus. And God redirected his natural parents to bring them where? Exactly back into the presence of Jesus Christ. God was subliminally, in a very secretive way, showing Joseph and Mary the ritual ceremonialism of the law isn't his intent, isn't his purpose. He was drawing them to where they needed to be exactly into the one the Passover was pointing to. Beloved, we are justified by faith. We are saved by faith. We are not saved by time. We are not saved by efficiency. We are not measured by time. We are measured by our faith. And sometimes the real Jesus wants you to get less done so that you will trust him more and divorce you from the fake, phony, functional Savior and introduce you to the real Jesus Christ. Sometimes God divorces you from a fake, phony Savior to introduce you to the real Christ. The third way he does that is by exposing where our faith really lies and directing us to him. As I spoke in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, the book of Job is really about repentance. Where at the end of the book of Job, after all of his suffering, Job repents. And then the book of Job is quickly over. Because Job ultimately justified himself. He stood before God and said, God, I'm really a good guy. I really don't deserve all of this. Based upon what I have done... I shouldn't be the recipient of all this suffering. And God withdrew his hedge of protection so he could reveal to Job what's really going on in his heart. 
Job really wasn't trusting God. He was trusting Job. And at the end of the book of Job, when all the suffering is done, Job is right there having an intimate, one-on-one communication with God. Just like our story here. Plans were derailed. Plans were disrupted. But at the end of all of that, Job was in intimate communication closer with God than he'd ever been. And that's exactly what happens in our story. Joseph and Mary were derailed to end up in the presence of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us God will bruise before he binds. He gives us the law before he gives us the gospel. He gives us the sense of need before he gives us a supply. And the way that you and I are to have a real relationship with the real Jesus Christ is sometimes God will expose the fact that something is missing. Something is deficient. Something that we suppose is there is not. And he will break that false relationship to give us a genuine one. As Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Now will God divorcing us, will God divorcing you from a fake Savior hurt? Of course it will. And that's the point. But he will not pull down your house to leave you destitute and homeless. He will tear down your house before that faulty foundation crushes you and your family in your sleep. He will tear that house down, rip it up out of the ground, and obliterate it. And then he will pour you a new rock-solid foundation based upon his exact truth. Rebuild those pillars back up and now put you into a place of safety, into the bosom and the arms of the real Jesus Christ. For he who began a good work in you will Finish it. Now, our narrative from Luke 2 tells us it is clear that in Jesus allowing his earthly parents to find him, he had something greater in store, and that something greater was to reveal who he really was. And as the text, as we'll dive into next week, when Joseph and Mary found him, they were amazed, they were in awe. When everyone who was around him heard him and saw him, they were awestruck and their minds were blown at the splendor and majesty of the seemingly only 12-year-old boy. Whenever we come face to face with a real Christ, the reaction's the same. We are in true awe and we are in wonder. And God often wants us to seek him because our expectations are too low. Our expectations are too meager, and God, in introducing us, wants to shatter our expectations. Because Joseph and Mary thought they lost a 12-year-old boy, but what they found was the Son of God. They found someone who knew exactly who he was and what he was called to do. And even though they didn't understand it, even though they didn't fully comprehend it, it's something that Mary, as the text will say, treasured for the rest of her life. 
Now I'll close by saying this. I ask the question, do you know the real Jesus over and over? But the real question is, does the real Jesus know you? If he stayed behind, would he notice your absence? If he decided to stay where you just left, would his servants notice that you are gone? Does he know the sound of your voice and the crying of your heart? Does he make all the difference to you at this point? Are you willing to change your plans and your life for the one who gifts eternal life? Now here's the question. It's tough to preach because I had to first ask myself this question over and over again this week. Is there anything in your life right now that you desire, that you seek, that you yearn for, that you want more than Jesus Christ? Jesus says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Matthew 11.28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beloved, the real Jesus is the only one who saves. Believe in him and him alone, and you will have real life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word in which, almighty God, the plain simplicity, yet the awe and wonder of the gospel is made so evident to us. We thank you, O Lord, for making your revelation to us so accessible and giving us the gift of the apostolic New Testament. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that for all those, whatever air of the world they're in, You allow these words to transform them. You allow the real Jesus, O Lord, to touch heart and minds, to touch the lives of those who do not yet know you, that they shall call upon your name, realizing that you are absent. And for those, O Lord, who already do know you, I implore you, O Lord, to lead them, guide them, and direct them back to the temple, back to Jerusalem, back to where the Messiah is, that they will have a real, genuine, lasting relationship with the real Jesus Christ, who was always and forevermore in his Father's house about his Father's business. We exalt you, O Lord, and thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, Peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.